This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me again this week is Tyler Johnson, who is coming off of what I hope was a relaxing vacation. Was that Riza you went to? Where did you go? Yeah, I definitely, I was in room 31 of section 31. Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to say that. No, it was oh, vacation. No. It was just a vacation. Okay. <laughs> And you didn't you didn't get yourself tied up in a basement by any hot babes, alien babes or anything like uh, Malcolm and Tripp did, did you? Yeah, I got into the spy game because of all the hot babes. That's definitely the reason. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you're back on the show this week. And, you know, we did a show, you and I did a show about, I don't know, a month or so ago where we talked about prequel technology. And you said we should follow this up with a show about prequel design and talk about the aesthetics of the show itself. And it's something that as a designer myself, I've always really loved about Enterprise is the approach to the design that they took. So I thought that sounded like a great idea. Yeah, I might end up deferring to you on a couple of these. I can say if they're cool and if I like them and you might be able to pick (laughs) them apart a little bit more. So (laughs) I think we have a good balance here. Yeah, I don't know if I have much to pick apart, really, because I think they did a really fantastic job. And leading into the show, you know, Herman Zimmerman, who was the chief production designer for every single episode of DS9, and he created the look of TNG and all the films after Star Trek V as well. Going into Enterprise, he asked the question, how do you imagine a future that's closer to our reality of 2001 than what Gene Roddenberry was imagining for a future 300 years away? And he said, we have to remain true to the franchise and all those elements of the future world we created for the next generation and Deep Space Nine and on Voyager so that what we do on Enterprise is not illogical, to use Spock's words, in the seeing of it later on. So in other words, how do you... How do you design a show that feels right to the viewer in 2001, that feels futuristic, that doesn't really contradict the technology they had available to do, certainly TOS, but also TNG DS9 Voyager, and feel like a progression in-universe, where when we look at that technology, we can kind of see how Starfleet got to what we see later on? Yeah, not only that, but it has to be you know, it's, it's entertainment. So it's got to be cool and it's got to be fun and it's got to, um, 
you know, have some design work that stands on its own merit. If you just took, you know, two other designs and sort of mixed them up together <laughs> and said, this right. is it, you just have sort of a hackneyed, terrible thing. So um, they, they had to really find their own voice. And, and by the way, you know, we're not talking about technology on the ship so much today, but the technology that they designed the show on um, yeah. is, is kind of important here because they were able to do a lot more things digitally than they had in some of the other shows. And um, that really opened up some doors, but because all the other shows or many of them had been models, um, you know, or certainly the, the, you know, the first two shows were, then they, you, you know, you've got to match that look while also having so many more things available to you to play with. Right. Yeah. They started using some CGI towards the end. Voyager has some CGI in it. There's um, actually Message in a Bottle was the first time where we saw CGI Romulan warbirds mm -hmm. in Star Trek. Uh, but but Enterprise was a show where it was the first time, right, that there was no physical model of this ship. And, you know, there are some moments, particularly when you look at stills from Enterprise, where it, it almost feels like a matte painting a little bit of the ship. But but those are rare instances, and I feel like because of what they're able to do with the lighting in particular, I feel like most of the time when I watch the NX-01 on screen, it feels more like a real ship on the exterior than anything that we saw in any of the other series. Yeah, I completely agree. It's almost like they weren't playing fair. They had Again, they just had so many tools at their disposal and they were able to start the show on that foot instead of trying to implement some of that stuff later or, right. you know, like the original series, they've gone back and <laughs> redone it all, essentially redone all those effects. And that's that's about the only way you're going to get that. Yeah. Well, by the time they got to Enterprise, of course, the technology to do the ship had advanced to the point where they could make it look very realistic. Because if you if you look at a lot of CGI leading up to that point, it still didn't quite feel right. Right. You know, like you could tell what the frame rate mm -hmm. was doing to the animation of the ship movement or ju just like the warbirds in Message in a Bottle, for me, don't quite feel right yet. Th th those scenes have sort of a video game feel to them. But by this point, it, it really does feel natural. Yeah, and I think it's um, I think there's a few moments where you can see artifacts of slightly older digital effects now that we're a few years in the future um, from yeah. when the show was made. But overall, I think it holds up pretty well. I mean, even on, on high def viewing, it, it really still works, but that's yeah, really not designed. So we're talking about how they did it. <laughs> I think we should get to the actual design part of it. Right. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although that did enable the design, mm -hmm. it enabled them to do things with the ship that uh, they, they could have done with the model. But I think that this technology gave them the the tools to refine that retro look even more so than they may have been able to do with a model. Well, let's talk about the ship a little bit more itself. Um, I remember when Enterprise came out, I remember reading a lot of things where fans really hated the NX-01. They hated the Enterprise. They just thought that it it wasn't Star Trek. It didn't feel right to them. I, on the other hand, loved it from the very moment I saw it. And because before before I saw it, I knew they're doing a prequel. What are they going to do? Because if you think back to the Star Wars prequel movies, the episode one, two, three, 
they also had to deal with this issue of making those ships feel retro within that universe and feel like a progression towards the ships that we saw in the original Star Wars movie and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And I thought they did a really great job there as well. And so what are they going to do with this on Star Trek with Enterprise? And uh, I, I, I thought they did a really great job. What did you think the first time you saw the ship? I thought it was great. I mean, all the people who got upset about it, I think they had some other kind of emotional attachment. I mean, I don't know that for sure. I can't talk to speak for everybody out there in the world, but you know, a lot of people just don't like change and seeing something new. And this isn't the exact same, you know, sort of proportions and that long neck and all those other things. But to me, it made sense in universe. And I also just like it. I think it's a cool, interesting looking design. It seems, you know, it's streamlined, not that you necessarily need that in space, but from a design perspective, it seems like everything, everything is simple and it is where it belongs, if that makes yeah. sense. And so that it, it's good. You think, oh, if I was going to put engines, I'd probably attach them this way. And it probably makes more sense to have it sort of on a single plane instead of, you know, all these different levels going up and down like the, you know, some of the other enterprise ships have it. So I, I actually think it's awesome. Yeah, I, I wonder, like you say, the long neck, but, you know, people didn't have a problem with Voyager. People didn't have a problem so much with the Enterprise E. Mm -hmm. It's like there's something about the 24th century ship design that you can play with it a lot and you can do things like Voyager or you can do things like the Prometheus. Again, going back to Voyager's message in a bottle, which apparently is a theme today. I wasn't planning on it being a theme, <laughs> but it is. But, you know, really, really different designs and everyone's fine with those because somehow they all feel like Starfleet for some reason. But yet this one was just so radically different that that it upset people. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I can see that. It's um, I like it. And that's all I really need to say, I guess. <laughs> but don't you feel like the NX-01 was a nice progression from Zephram Cochran's Phoenix that we saw in First Contact? Oh, def I mean, th that's, that's the whole point, I think, here, at least from yeah. my perspective, is it makes sense in universe. It really does look... We talked about this on the tech sequel or prequel a little bit in, in the sense that maybe they're a little too close to that future already, um, given that it's 100 years before we see the original series ship. But um, yeah. it still fits in the middle and it should be on that spectrum somewhere. Right. From a design standpoint, it felt like a nice progression mm -hmm. um, with the nacelles and the shape, and it really felt like a bridge. Now, we've talked before on here a little bit, and we certainly talked about it with Doug Drexler when he was on the show early on about the NX refit, which gets us closer to the Constitution class enterprise, where um, you actually do have a secondary hull and therefore the, the saucer is raised up in the plane a little bit. And uh, they really had thought about doing that for the show from the beginning. And then they ended up with this flatter design. Do you have any f strong feelings about one or the other? Do you feel like it was a good idea that they went with the, the flatter design first and then that refit could be seen as an evolution? You know, <laughs> I've, I have feelings that kind of um, contradict themselves, I think, a little bit. I think that um, I, I like the refit just to look at, and I think it's very interesting. I, it's the the one issue I ever have with it is that, you know, that feels like that should be 
50 years later or something like later, that, where you start yeah. to see that much similarity there. And it, yeah. I also think it's sort of, it, it feels added on to the design, which it should. Like, hey, there's something, we sort of tacked this on later. It wasn't thought through right from the beginning. So while it still looks good, pretty, really good, it's also not as integrated as it could be. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, I think I actually like the, the day one design a little better, um, just mm -hmm. judging the design, you know, forgetting everything else that's happening there. Right, right, right. Yeah, I I agree with you on the timeline that, yeah, maybe it would be a little bit too soon to have the, the similarities in design in the refit. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm glad they started with the flat one, though. I, mm -hmm. I think that, that that should have been the first. And then maybe it would have been cool if by like going into season seven, if we had mm -hmm. had seven seasons, then that's where we get to the refit, which of course it doesn't really help much with your timeline because we're only talking about another couple of years, but <laughs> um, it might have, it would have been a, maybe a nice touch towards the end of the series to kind of bridge over. Yeah. I might've had some, I mean, I say that now, but if they'd actually flown in, you know, from right to left on the screen, I might have had some little girlish, nerdy giggles. Ooh, look at it. It's got a, it's got, it's got the dish down <laughs> on the bottom. It's got the secondary hole. That's so cool. I, I you yeah. know, who knows how they would have actually used it on screen. It, it may have been. It's got the red stripe with the little yellow delta on the tip. <laughs> yeah, it would just, right it would have been fun. Hole. I mean, it was, it's definitely yeah. a fun idea. Um, yeah. uh, you know, but I, I think I like the simplicity of the design they use right out of the gate personally a little bit better. Well, let's go inside the ship and talk about the interiors a little bit. And one thing they did, I'm sure you've heard this story about how Rick and Brandon and Herman Zimmerman went down to San Diego and they took a tour of a nuclear submarine to get a feel for what the inside of an actual naval vessel like that would be. And of course, I think a submarine is the better analogy for a starship than, than say, an aircraft carrier or a destroyer or something that's on top of the water. Because essentially when you're in space, it is like you're underwater. And this really informed the design decisions that they made. Because Zimmerman said the important thing about this new enterprise, interior and exterior, is that it should be retro and cool. Two buzzwords that very easily slip off the tongue, but not so easy to conceive on paper. And then in the reality of the scenery on stage. So how do you feel about the way they pulled off the interior? I I would actually use the, I, I, to me, what they got from the submarine, it's, it's a little cramped mm -hmm. and it's a little bit, um, it, it's, things just seem more practical. Yeah which I really like. I think as a design decision, I mean, we're talking about real design. We're not talking about making it look cool. We're thinking about how would someone live in a cabin? Where would the bed be? How would there be a desk and a bed? You know, on the, um, when you, when you're looking at the bridge, you know, what's, what's a good functional way for a bunch of people to be able to get in there. Um, so all of those things in general, I like, and I think we can get into some specifics on those as well, but I think, um, it, you know, of course on the original series, I don't know if they thought it through in the same way um, mm -hmm. because, you know, science hadn't come quite as far and there just wasn't as much science fiction to draw on for inspiration. Right. There's a lot going on here now and there was a lot more need for it to be real because people will pick it apart if it's not. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. On, on television, just the television audience in general would pick a show apart more if elements were not accurate than they would have in the 1960s. You know, I 
I always think about how on American television shows in the past, if someone were speaking a foreign language, it would just be gibberish a lot of the time. Like they're supposed to be speaking Russian mm -hmm. and they would be saying something that kind of maybe sounds like what the actors or directors think Russian sounds like, but they're not actually saying anything at all, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Same with Japanese. And if you speak those languages and, and you're watching the show, you're like, what? What are you doing? How hard mm -hmm. is it for you to get someone to write real lines so that you can say them? And it's kind of similar with sets like this as well. Like if you, if you really want a sense of realism, and that's definitely one thing that's always attracted me to Star Trek is the fact that even in the 24th century series, you know, yeah, that stuff's very futuristic and all, but it has a framework that really does feel like it could exist to you. You know, it's not a fantasy show. It really is more of a scientific and uh, a show that is built around what could be a realistic future. Yeah, and I think there's another thing that's changed with the audience as well is the sort of appleification, if that's a word, uh -huh. of society and that we've all – we all think we know a little bit more about design now because we've seen the, the ways that a couple companies have taken um, what used to be complicated things and made them simple yeah. and, and, you know, really thought about interfaces and the size of things and the way you hold it and the way you use it. And so a lot of that, I think, we're thinking of this. Um, what people can't see right now, Tyler, what they can't see because we're not doing video today is they can't see you sitting there in your black shirt with the white background behind you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I get what you're saying. It, I, I think the audience is a bit more general public is a bit more design savvy today than 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. Can you imagine a car with giant tail fins now? It just wouldn't fly. It's It, it would just feel impractical and strange. And, you know, there was a time that that kind of thing really worked. And that just happened to be when Star Trek was launching, right? <laughs> when the When the original yeah. series was coming out. So um, I think now people have a higher expectation. And 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 as a show designer, when you're going through and doing this stuff, you really, just like you would with a character where you're going to think through what's my backstory, you know, why am I going to act this way? What's this person think or do when they're not on screen? Um, I think they did the same thing with the ship when they were designing it. You know, what? how would this really work? Where would this really be? And... Um, I think it shows on screen. I think there's a lot of little touches that you don't even hardly see. Um, you know, and I think the bridge is a really good example of that. Just, you know, it has a little bit of the feel of original series. And then it has a lot of things that are modern kind of swapped in there as well. Yeah. Well, the bridge is a really good topic to discuss a little bit here because the... Bridge of 24th century ships, those bridges. So Gene Roddenberry wanted to have, he didn't want to have a lot of blinkies, you know, light, lights and stuff blinking around all over the bridge on the Enterprise D because his approach was that the interfaces should be mm -hmm. very simple. And that was a way of conveying that the instruments were very sophisticated and very complex. And after they did encounter at Farpoint, they realized that we, we need to have some kind of activity, some kind of motion going here. So they found ways to create, uh, you know, using illuminated panels and such, some ways to create a bit of activity on the bridge. But when you look at Enterprise, Enterprise has over 30 actual display screens all over the bridge. 
and those those uh, displays are being fed by Macs. They have like 15 Mac cubes in this, like a it's almost like a bridge setting. Who's wearing for the, the black set. shirt now, Chris? Like a, a video <laughs> command center. Yes, I am. But this is true. This is mm-hmm. actually what they were using. And you know, the series just right before this Voyager had 11 displays on the bridge, but. They were fed mainly by three-quarter inch decks, and they had a couple mm-hmm. of computers, but it was still pretty much, it was the the TNG DS9 Voyager feel. And in updating the feel of the show to modern standards and what people are accustomed to, they they put so much activity on the bridge of the Enterprise through these LCD panels and, and all these displays. And... Did it feel like Star Trek to you, especially coming right off Voyager? It was such a jarring change. But again, they're trying to bridge a gap. Yeah, they had that problem as well in that, you know, the TOS Enterprise had, um, you know, big jelly buttons everywhere right? <laughs> and tapes yeah. that you were slipping in. But the original Enterprise actually had like paper prints glued onto where the screen was supposed to be right exactly so like the displays were weird and when i was thinking of the controls when i said that but both of those things right that both neither <laughs> one of them really you know they they work in a way because it's almost retro now you yeah. know um or yeah. it is retro but um you know it you it's hard to imagine how those would actually work and you know a little bit the, the same for some of the other ones but in the in the other series you think well i don't know how that would work but they're so far in the future i just i guess i could never figure it out and they need like so this almost need to be a prequel that forgot the, <laughs> that the original yeah. series ever happened in terms of the way they manipulate things but they did right. bring in some stuff there i mean they they you know what do they call that little scanner that um spock was always looking into you yeah, know. I don't know the exact name for it. I just always call it Spock's science viewer. Right. You know, he's always peering down and yeah, they put that in there, yeah. Yeah, what what are those things um used to, you know, look in and you pull a little lever and it would the story would move forward. Oh, a little viewmasters, yeah. Yeah, viewmaster. It's like a little viewmaster. I always thought he was in there pulling right. the slides and looking at whatever was yeah. happening there. But really he was probably just staring into a light bulb. It was probably really boring for him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they brought one of those in. They had a few other touches like that. Some of the door controls and things like that look similar, but um, and Hoshi has the earpiece. Like Hoshi has the earpiece as well. But so everything else like feels that. a little bit more like it was pulled off um, the other Enterprise. The, by, by that I mean the space shuttle. You know, it's, it's more right. realistic yeah, controls yeah, yeah. that are just everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Which I liked because I think that when you've got a series where. It's set so close to our own time period. You've got a captain walking around the baseball cap on. You've got a dog running around the ship. You know, all, all this stuff feels so close to us that it needs to feel like something we would build. And I've probably said this on this show before. I know I've said it on the network before that as much as I like the Enterprise D and E and Voyager and all these ship designs, none of them feel like anything we would build. But yet the NX-01 feels like something that we might go out and build today. And the difference between what we built and what they're actually flying on in the show is that ours wouldn't be able to travel faster than light. Oh, yeah. We could totally build the ship just rocket-powered right now, right? <laughs> right, yeah. We could build have ordinary engines, but... Yeah. 
But as far as the aesthetics, both exterior and interior, you know, you've got exposed pipes all over the place. You've got graded flooring. Everything's metal. Uh, it, it it has that very much submarine feel. It feels like something that we would build. Yeah, I like that touch too. In Archer's Cabin, there's that one low-hanging part of the ceiling. Yeah. Or I guess it's a beam, really. But, you know, he, he at first he hits his head on it and he realizes that he needs a duck underneath it. And it just makes it feel more like a real-world place to me. Yeah. Um, and, and those touches go all over the place in the ship. Which they even use as a plot device in Vanishing Point, I believe, mm-hmm. where Hoshi's trying to send a message to them. So you've got this actual pipe running across the ceiling. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they were just setting that up right from the beginning, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, and, you know, it, it also, I think it does add something. You lo- There's so much detail on this screen, um, especially compared to the original series and s- to a certain extent TNG. Um, in terms of what's going on on that bridge that you really can't even yeah. see it all. I mean, a lot of it was probably done in case there was a close-up of a certain scene, you know, a certain scene that they needed or just, you know, for the sake of the actor. So they felt like in the design people, they felt like this was a real place that um, people would believe. And I, I just really appreciate that. I think that's, yeah. you know, quite often you have to do something on a budget and you just say, well, that's good enough and that's what it's going to be. And I feel like they really put a lot of, um, time and effort into that that they didn't have to right and, and also the all the years of working on all the other series i think helped them refine their process mm-hmm. to the point where like here because they had the ability to have actual live video feeds on the bridge they created a set of wallpaper animations that they could just have running anytime the ship was just under normal operations they just have these things running but then when there was going to be a close-up of a display in a specific scene, then Denise Okuda would work together with the director to figure out what's supposed to be on the screen mm-hmm. in that situation. And they would work that out. And then John Vanover would go and actually create the animation. And because they had the video control center back there that was being run by Ben Betts, they could actually feed that in to that scene. And of course the, um, you know, costs of doing that as well. It was, it was just a completely different environment than what they worked on, especially when they were setting up TNG. Yeah. And you know what? You're a designer, Chris. I work with a number of designers at my job. And if for some reason, some reason somebody came to me and said, we have a project, we want you to design what's going to be on all these screens. Mm-hmm. Are, would they be fighting each other to do that? It seems like so much fun. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, in terms of like, I, I get to they get to be kind of anything, and they're futuristic, and you know, oh, that sounds great. Um, I would want to do that. I'm just not that great at that stuff. I'd be fine. Of course, I'd be putting all kinds of little in jokes in the text. Oh, of which course they do. They're probably <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's another reason why I'd be fighting for it. Like someday you're showing your kid, like there's you really small in there. So uh, yeah. that's great. Well, we talked about the fill of the bridge and we've talked about the control panels here as well and how they, you know, they're kind of more analog. The The interface is much boxier, which uh, which I like a lot better personally than the LSARS displays on the, the 24th Century series just because LSARS is, it's, it's kind of cool to look at, especially at first. And it works well on the panels for the shots just around the bridge. But to actually use it, it seems like it just the the system. I don't. 
I've tried using like um, the iPad app, which has the LSARS interface, the mm-hmm. the pad app for iPad. It's nerve wracking. It's like you 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 use it for five minutes, and you're like, I think I'm just gonna open a browser on my computer and just look this up over there on Star Trek.com. It's easier. So, but I like the the interface style in Enterprise makes a lot more sense to me as a computer. Yeah, and TNG interface. every now and again there were episodes that almost fell apart with data moving in his hands really quickly. <laughs> you know, and you're like, something's happening, but I don't know if this makes any sense to anybody. <laughs> I don't know. You really. know it looks really <laughs> frustrating. It seems like there'd be a quicker way to do that <laughs> by, by right. the time we get there. <laughs> it's like the Microsoft ribbon in yeah. Office now. <laughs> like, right. Every possible command is right there on the top of your screen. Right. Or I was just thinking the little, I thought for a second, I thought you meant the little paperclip who, who used to pop out for in office. Oh, him. Do you need no. help? <laughs> That's right. That would be cool if that were on a Starfleet ship. It looks like you're trying to fire torpedoes. <laughs> Chris, this is what you would have put in the background screens if you if you had gotten a chance to design, or maybe I would. I don't know, but there would have been something like that in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to one other part of the ship while we're in the interior, and this is one I just wanted to t- touch on for a minute. And that's the engine room, because I really liked again from a design standpoint of trying to bridge our own time with the original series time period, which would then lead to the twenty fourth century. I like the fact that the warp engine design here is more like what we saw in Star Trek, the motion picture instead of the magic lava lamp skyscraper design that we got <laughs> in the later series. Yeah. Wasn't that just two other props cut in half and stuck together on some of the, and they did for, for the next generation. And then they sort of had to keep that aesthetic going later as like part of the, as like part <laughs> of a Jeffrey's tube or something. And they just glued two of them together and put a light inside. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, I like it too. I think it, it it's a set that actually, you know, forgetting the the look of it, it gives people a lot of stuff to do. The fact there's all those different levels in there. Um, you know, if you look way to the back, there's sort of a glowing mesh, kind of like TOS. You know, yeah. like, oh, what's beyond that? Don't go beyond there. <laughs> there's, a, there's another big room and it's glowing and it's really cool, but don't, don't worry about any of that. Um, you know, uh, so I, I like it. Yeah, it feels real, right? I mean, th- this is a dangerous piece of equipment that they have powering their ship. And here it feels like, you know, it takes up the whole room. Everything is really cramped, really tight. And it looks like an actual piece of working machinery. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, there's one other thing. Well, let, maybe we can hold off on that. Do you have anything else you want to say about the engine room? Because I had one other thing that's been bothering me that I wanted to bring up. Okay. Uh, the only other thing I was going to say about the engines is that I think that Voyager and then the Enterprise E started to turn that tall lava lamp engine into something that seemed like it might be more of an actual propulsion device. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the Enterprise D, it felt like this enormous ship and there was this tiny little engine room and over in the corner, there was this little column that was somehow powering. <laughs> and and I, I just think it's important not to think of the warp engine as some sort of magical device, that it's actually a piece of equipment. And that's where I think the the later ships, like I mentioned Voyager Enterprise E did a bit better with it. But I think this and Star Trek The Motion Picture also uh, did an even better job of making it feel real. You know, it's funny. I've never really thought about it because 
I <laughs> I know how the theory of how warp works, but how yeah. the energy is made to make warp, uh, to me, I just, I'm like, uh, it's magic. You know, whatever they <laughs> do, like, I don't want to think about it too hard because then I might start not liking it for some reason. I'll start picking it <laughs> apart, like how this theoretical universe <laughs> uh, technology works. But I do like the fact that there's, there's just, it feels like... Um, there's sort of a, a patina, even though it's brand new, there's a patina on things and there's sort of, it feels um, so much less sterile. Let's put it that way than some of the other yeah, ships do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that yeah. that feels right as well. And it kind of, again, matches that prequel feel of it. We we know where we are now. We've seen where the ships are in the future. This is, this is a mid-step in between. Yeah. Where does the sterile thing come from? I guess it's just the idea that in the future we're able to keep everything really, really clean. <laughs> well yeah it's you know on in in uh the next generation those those perfect panels you know they never get dirty it's great they never get dirty. Yeah. <laughs> they're antiseptic but yeah you're right it's it's like they they've just removed everything to the point that there's nothing to get dirty in there anymore and you don't ever seem you know they're always pulling out tools but they're weird tools they're not wrenches um yeah and except on ds9 when you have rom fix something for you and then he has like vacuum tubes and all kinds of stuff just strewn all over the place (laughs) well yeah uh yeah he's a troublemaker let's just leave it at that he's an he's an outlier it it is kind of strange right how clean the ships are in the future and Mm -hmm. this is a case where yeah i agree with the prequel that uh, a spaceship is going to be a very dirty environment. I just, it has to be, I I think, because you are going to, especially at this point in time in the 22nd century, you're really going to have to be fixing that ship all the time. So mm-hmm. it's going to be more like a body shop environment, right? It's going to be, there's going to be grease around. I think there's an argument to be made either way. Um, you know, this is one of the things that Star Wars did get pretty, pretty right from the beginning in that, in that their ships look used and dirty Um, and you know, I think that's a lot of other science fiction has taken that cue, but there's also, if you go to the, you know, the jet fighter deck on a bat, you know, a aircraft carrier or something, they walk those things every day and they're spotless because one little particle or one little nut could completely derail that. So, I mean, we don't see Tripp telling everyone they have to clean, but I bet you it doesn't make good TV, but he's, (laughs) he has people cleaning day and night in addition to working on everything. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And and it's a good point about aircraft because, yeah, they do have to keep those things scrubbed, which makes you wonder why you don't see anybody. Like you would expect for the Enterprise D to be as clean as it is on the inside, that there would be cleaning crews roaming the corridors all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Just cleaning, but you never see them. I hope that's automated someday. (laughs) (laughs) You do see, though, in the Wrath of Khan, when they come out of the Kobayashi Maru simulator room, you do see a guy with some sort of space vacuum cleaning the lobby outside, just below the exit sign. I'm just laughing because I like the term space vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to order me one of those from Amazon. I'm going to go Google it right when we get done with the show here and see if I can buy a space vacuum. <laughs> so, okay, here's here's the thing I wanted to bring up that's always been – this is a design question I have about every Star Trek ship. Why is the bridge in a little bubble on the pot on the top where you can just shoot it? <laughs> right. I know, right? It doesn't uh, make any sense. I guess so you can have a skylight, you know, and you can see the beautiful stars above you. 
Yeah, I guess. It's like if I was in a fight, I would just shoot that. I would aim everything at that. They're always aiming at the engine room and the phaser banks and all that. And I would just aim all my guns at that and um, the, it'd be over essentially, right? Because they'd have no command system. Well, you know, it's it's an it's an interesting point, and actually, in the uh, the recent book series, The Fall, that followed um, the 24th century, but past the series, it's you know the the big event in Star Trek literature that started last autumn, last fall, which is why it's called The Fall. But we we had on literary treks, we had David R. George III on, uh, who wrote the first book, Revelation and Dust, in that series, and spoiler alert. For anyone, a fan of DS9 who hasn't read through the novels, eventually, and I won't say when it happens, but eventually Terok Nor, DS9 that you see on the series, gets destroyed. And Starfleet builds a new Deep Space Nine station, but it's a Starfleet-built station. And Revelation and Dust, the first book in the Fall series, is the first time that we get to see that station. And... What David was talking about on the show was this exact thing, Tyler, about why is the command center always put in such a vulnerable position? And he said that when he designed the new DS9 station, he wanted to put the command center in the very, very middle of the station, like buried in the middle, and call it the core. And that was for what you're talking about. It, it, you don't want your command center to be vulnerable. Yeah, totally. And it, this is this is totally off topic if we're talking about all of them, but it is part of the design of the NX-01. <laughs> so it's fair game yeah. for this particular show. Um, you know, in, in the next generation, you know, when they go down to the battle bridge one time, I thought, oh, great, they finally figured this out. You know, that's fantastic. And then they immediately said, well, that's a pain to always go down there. So we're never going to do that again. It'll be, you know, once every <laughs> five seasons, we'll do that or something. And that's going to be about it. Well, you, you know, you know our joke about that, right? That they they finally decide to go back down there one day. I don't know, around season five or six, and they open the door, and Argyle is in there, just in his boxers, <laughs> and the place is just a wreck, and he's got posters all over the wall, and his little gin distillery is over there. He thought no one was using it, so he moved in. I, I've heard, I hear you guys talk about Argyle. I'd never heard that particular part of it, so I like it. <laughs> it's on one of the shows somewhere. But, Dad, you said I could use the basement for whatever I wanted. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about within Enterprise here, while we're talking about ships, just briefly, some of the other ships that we see that they had to apply a retro design feel to in order to bridge that gap uh, we were talking before the show, and you mentioned the Romulan ships. Yeah, you know when I think it when I think of the series, that's actually one of the ships designs that I that comes immediately to mind um, because you know they've been represented pretty well through all the series and movies, and so we've seen a lot of different um, looks. And I think I actually like the ships in Enterprise the best. I think that they're, yeah. they're sufficiently backward engineers back in time so that they make sense for, for where they are in the timeline, but they're also kind of cool and it feels like the same culture and they're green. That's good. You know, <laughs> Yeah. but I, I really like them. I think they did a good job of creating something that had the feel of the bird of prey that we saw in balance of terror on the original series, but felt Romulan to what we were accustomed to, because like you said, it's green. 
and just the overall feel, it did have that Romulan aesthetic that we were accustomed to without feeling like some kind of skyscraper in space, which is what the Warbirds on TNG felt more like. Yeah, they had that cool, I mean, they, they lived up to their name Bird. They always had that sort of uh, bird look in yeah. the front, but I don't know. I, I it's It's got this really organic feel to it, and it doesn't have, um, as much as I like the, the NX-01 design, I do think there's something to be said that spaceships don't need to be sort of this straight line thing, um, and they can be, you know, the engines could be way out to the side or way in the front or way in the back, and and it seems like they're one of the races who actually took that and, and used it in, in their design as if they weren't mm-hmm. constrained to something that need to fly in an atmosphere. Yeah. Another one for me that felt really nice were the Klingon ships when we saw them. Now, the Klingons themselves felt pretty much like Klingons I'm used to. I don't know that they really captured the retro feel of the race as a whole. But the ships themselves had a pretty nice retro design to them. I I mentioned Star Wars earlier on, and one thing are the, the ships that would eventually become X-Wing fighters, for example, in the later Star Wars movies. The way that those types of ships are presented in the three prequel movies is very similar to the way I feel that they handled the Klingon ships in Enterprise, where they were similar, they were very similar, and when you see them, you immediately know what they are. But you also feel like, you know, this is a much earlier profile, much earlier design of this concept. Yeah. And actually, there's your proof of concept about cleanliness that Klingons don't clean. Those ships are filthy. No. <laughs> well, that's why they keep the lighting so dim. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what happened. They they had this really dirty ship and some captain said, I have an idea. We don't clean. We'll just turn the lights down a little bit. Turn the lights down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it became sort of the fashion. I ordered dimmer switches to be installed throughout the ship. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think they were a nice progression. And um, I also think they were they were good looking in their own right. If, if, if they had existed and there was nothing before or after them, I, I'd like the ships as they were represented there. Yeah. Now Vulcan ships are something that we don't really see in Star Trek outside of Enterprise very much. And the, the ones they have an Enterprise, so it's hard to compare, like, is this a good retro design to something later? However, talking about bringing it closer to our time and giving it something that feels futuristic to us, but doesn't feel like you're all the way in the 24th century. What do you think about the Vulcan ships? The the design of those, I find them really strange, I think, as a starship Mm. design. Although, as you were just saying a minute ago, our preconceived notions of what a ship should be shaped like in space, it really doesn't have that much validity because you don't need to have an aerodynamic ship in space. But what they do remind me of a little bit is something that you might have seen in 2001 a space odyssey Mm -hmm. yeah i think well i'm gonna go i'm gonna put my black shirt back on again and i think the (laughs) um the vulcans are max and the uh the klingons are pcs right (laughs) because the klingons are very boxy and straightforward and everything you you'd expect you know we should put a gun here there will be a gun there and, and the the vulcans are looking it seems to me like they're really trying to project some aesthetic beauty into their ships yeah. and it's a, yeah, it's a it cultural statement and you're right it would have been great to have seen those represented in more of the series more often and it's really you see way more of them in enterprise than any place else yeah yeah 
All right. Well, let's move off of ships now and talk about one other key design element in Enterprise, and those are the uniforms. So this was also quite a departure from what we were accustomed to because we had pretty much had, you know, the candy colors all the way from TOS forward with the red, blue, and gold divisions being used in some way. And and they worked that into the uniforms on Enterprise as well, but it's very, very subtle. How do you feel about this design decision? Yeah, I like them. I don't, I don't know if I have a, a huge opinion. I mean, I think they're definitely going for a NASA look. Yeah. Is, is, is the, direct the right design stuff, direction there. Basically. The yeah. thing that I took away from it is that um, jumpsuits are kind of like bell bottoms. They kind of go in and out of style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're in style. Then you get to the TOS and they're out of style. You get the TNG, they're back in style, but they've been, they've been rethought a little bit. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, in addition to the colors, which, which get codified, you know, in a really subtle way here, it seems like, it seems like they, they tried to set it up in such a way that, you know, you feel like you're heading towards something, but it's, it's, this it's it's probably the element that relates the best to what we would wear in space now and what we do wear in space yeah. now compared to everything yeah. else on the ship, which was um, a little more futuristic. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were going for, like you said, the NASA look. I think there was a bit of the right stuff there that kind of bringing back the idea of our, our own initial uh, journey out into space and what that was like for astronauts and sort of transplanting that to the 22nd century, giving a similar feel to these guys who were going out into deep, deep space for the first time. And I, I think at least for me, for this series, having the jumpsuits, having something that we know is clearly going to be abandoned by Starfleet works because it it allows you to lead up again it's something we didn't see on screen but it allows you to lead up to a breaking point where there's some great design transition that could accompany like a next big step in the the evolution as a spacefaring race and if you read the current enterprise novels that are coming out the rise of the federation novels by Christopher L Bennett you you start to see a transition in the uniform designs you find out where the color scheme comes from, in fact, and you 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 see that bridge towards the TOS era uniforms. And this is a design element for me that that I do like very very much. And also, obviously, I think it goes without saying that I'm really glad that they made gold the command color again mm-hmm. for this series. Um, I like red as the command color. But if you're going to do a prequel series, then you have to go back to the TOS scheme of having gold for command. Yeah, that's a good point. It shows that they really put a lot of thought into even some small details like that. It's a pretty big detail. You know, your your main actor's uniform. Um, yeah. But they could have chinsed out on that and, and, you know, not really thought that through. The other thing that's interesting is there's not a lot of pockets in Star Trek and they have all kinds of pockets in these, which is really great because it just seems so much more practical. <laughs> you know, I'm not always sticking something onto my belt and just, it stays there on its own somehow. Yeah. The, these uniforms are like a zipper and pocket bonanza. Mm-hmm. It's just like how many, you, you know, you know that at this point, well, I guess the Starfleet school of fashion, which we always talk about, wasn't really 
up and running yet. It must have been the Space Probe Agency School of Fashion. They they were looking at these uniform designs and someone pointed out, there's a patch of fabric right here that doesn't have a pocket or a zipper. Put something on it. So they like put another zipper on there that leads to nowhere. <laughs> Although I, there were a couple times, I don't remember which episode this happens first, but where Archer kind of reaches into a pocket on his forearm and pulls out his communicator. And I said, where did that come from? What just happened? Like His pockets? <laughs> when, who authorized this? And then you think, oh, of course that makes sense. Like that you want that to be really, it's almost like your wristwatch. You want to be able to grab it really quickly. Right. Um, one of the other things I like about them that, that doesn't really continue forward that I'm kind of sad. I don't want to say it got dropped um, because obviously this was done in, in our timeline Um later in production but the the ship patches i thought were a really cool touch yeah and a yeah. nod to the way we do things now and something that i wish you saw more of in the other series yeah 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 i like them on enterprise and and it works well when trip goes over to the columbia and in fact they even make that a point where hernandez tells him like you might want to change your uniform patch right there mm-hmm. still says an x01 on it so that's a cool little nasa nod as well and of course you know in the original series the delta insignia was that was the insignia for the enterprise and every ship had its own insignia and then starfleet adopted well i guess you're right i never really thought about that yeah i knew that they had different insignias but i hadn't really figured that out i just knew that for some reason um they were completely different uniforms when you left a ship so it seems yeah (laughs) like in later years they're like oh well you just we're gonna pick our uniform that our whole crew is gonna wear yeah so eventually the the delta became the the emblem used for all Starfleet uniforms instead of have, because if you think about it, I mean, once you have like 200, 300 ships in the fleet, it gets pretty hard to keep coming up with new shapes for little emblems for every ship. Right. I like it. I think that's, I think that's more fun. I I would, I would want an emblem for my ship. If I had a, if I had a spaceship, we would print t-shirts with (laughs) with our own design on it. (laughs) That'd be cool. So, yeah, I like the patches as well. I don't know if I would want them to be on the uniforms in the 24th century, but they work really well for Enterprise. No, the, whatever the new version of that. Obviously, that would have to progress as yeah. well. You wouldn't go get it sewn on. That that wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it'd be good good business for Garrick, though. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just right. I think well, Garrick would be a really bad designer. I don't... Uh, of, of patches i i think he would um, be sneaking things into them that shouldn't be there i don't know what, like like listening devices yes maybe like listening <laughs> devices that'd be a good example yeah well he did make a custom made starfleet cadets uniform for nog well that's right he did do that yeah. in fact uh, he charged rom five strips of latinum for it so a little bit pricey since since no one's ever paid for a Star Trek uniform, I don't know if that's the going rate or not. <laughs> right. Yeah. How would you know? <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up the discussion today, Tyler, with one last question. At the beginning, I mentioned that Herman Zimmerman said that they had to remain true to the franchise and all the elements that they created for TNG DS9 Voyager so that when you see those later on, it doesn't seem illogical. So my question in closing for you would be, do you feel like they achieved that goal? Do you feel like the overall design aesthetic of Enterprise found the right balance in making the show feel real to us and closer to our time 
but still bridging the gap in a way that feels like a natural progression to the future as Roddenberry saw it. Yeah, I think um, I, I halfway want to reject this question in the sense that I don't care about that canon on the level that some other people do. I think it's important. And yeah. I think it's great. And I think if with this much, this many episodes and books and things out there, it, you would just get crushed by it if you tried to complete it. So I think they, they had a good balance of let's throw some nods in in the design and some allusions to things. But also, you know, let's not just sort of backwards engineer from um, the TOS Enterprise and put jelly buttons everywhere and, and be stuck with that design yeah. aesthetic because that's what we've already seen. So I, I think I think they succeeded, and I think they succeeded partially because they decided to ignore some things and just sort of throw some homages in there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You can't be a slave to what came before because mm-hmm. then it becomes obvious that you're you're trying not to you're you're resisting um, advancement, but. I think they did a really good job. I think that Enterprise may have been the most difficult design job that this crew had on the Star Trek franchise. And, you know, these guys worked on, most of these guys worked on all the modern series. And a lot of them who, you know, didn't work on the original series because they weren't old enough to be working on a show at that time, they still know the original series and are influenced by that as well. And so... Creating the look of Enterprise was a monumental task, and I I think they did a really good job. I think the show looks beautiful, feels real to me, and I'm able to look at just about everything on the show and accept it as an earlier stage in the evolution of human starship design and Star Trek design and Starfleet aesthetics and... um, I can't really think of anything there that that breaks anything for me. You know, I mean, I could if we did a show where we picked things apart, then maybe I could I could highlight a few things. I could dig and find some stuff, but you know, that's um that's not really the point. The point is whether when you watch the stories does it all flow for you and I think it does. Yeah, I think that you know, I agree with you on that point and I also think that something we haven't talked about is that the the production values on this show are far superior to any of the other shows and some of the movies, you know, yeah. it, and just in terms of the quality of effects, the quality of the sets, you know, and a lot of those sets were great at the time. A lot of them were groundbreaking at the time. So, you know, I'm not yeah. saying that they were bad in a stretch. It's just, you, you know, we, we've progressed in, in a number of things that we can do, um, and, and including little technologies of molding things to, to build into a bridge, for example. So, um, I was really happy from for with it or about it with a from a design perspective, but also from that production quality perspective. It just made it 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 made it feel so much more real to me that they were able to do some things digitally that didn't feel like that you were in a video game, and um, you know a lot of little touches like that. Um, I, I think really helped me enjoy the show. So I, I get I guess it gets thumbs up for that as well. Most definitely. Well, it's. I'm glad that you suggested this topic, and I hope that everyone will enjoy having this show together with our prequel technology show as a nice little look at the, the prequel look of Enterprise. But we've been talking about a lot of other things on the network this week, so here are some other shows you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Marathons for new viewers. 
if if someone were to say to my 13 year old self here is every single episode of star trek ever made i just don't know what i would do i honestly think i probably wouldn't appreciate the shows as much as i do because they'd be so disposable earl gray Death ball and hollow pursuits did he override anything, or did he actually just walk no. right in? No, he just hit the button. He just went boopity boop boop. The ready room. Yapple with Mark Cushman. But he's standing outside this building talking to Val. <laughs> and there was this one point in the script where the writer wrote, Val reacts to what Kirk said, and Bob Justman in his memo said, I'm sitting here trying to imagine how a building is going to react to what our Captain Kirk says. The orb. Runabouts. It definitely feels more like the Old West. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're basically in a covered wagon instead of, like, a train. But so. a covered wagon that can go warp five. To the journey! Cue on Voyager. You know, you got the, the chocolates and the roses and, you know, the I'm puppies. I'm not talking about like the puppies. <laughs> yes. Someone had to do it. I'm not talking about the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Warp 5. Malcolm Reed. It almost feels like the writers thought it was fun to just keep throwing facts in and dialogue about him. You know, usually in the show Bible, you want to see people do things and they just say, oh, we'll, have some, we'll have this person say this. We'll have a whole episode about how he loves pineapple, but he's allergic to it. <laughs> Commentary Trek stars. Robert Hewitt Wolf recap. So it's it was like Three Amigos or Galaxy Quest, but with Anne Rice. I think it, it might have been. I, I could be wrong about that. I don't know. That sounds you know. equally amazing and horrible. Melodic tricks. Dick Fontaine and DS9's nice Jazz. In 1983, Darren was offered the role of Jim Corrigan on ABC series TJ Hooker. The part of Hooker, as many of you will know, was played by none other than William Shatner or Captain James Tiberius Kirk. Literary tricks. The Insolence of Office. But Starfleet's a military organization, and when you sign up for Starfleet, you're you're joining that group, and I think that you give up some of your rights in that situation. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week, and some days we even have two shows, and you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So go grab some shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. Well, if you'd like to share your thoughts on the prequel design of Enterprise, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can go to our website at trek.film slash contact to send us a message. That'll come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.film slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show, about Warp 5, about Enterprise, anything you want to discuss related to Star Trek, you can do it there. And in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and you'll always find us tweeting away about Star Trek on Twitter under username TrekFM. Another thing that we would appreciate, if you enjoy the show and you have a free moment, drop by iTunes and leave us a star rating and a written review. It does help other Enterprise fans find the show as they search iTunes, and we just love to hear from you and hear what you think about the show. So drop by if you have a moment. It only takes, you know, a minute to write up a review, and it really does help support the network and the show. Not only that, but I think it helps to really show there's a community out there, which is great. We love to hear from you and we love to interact if we can. Yeah, most definitely. 
Now, Tyler, when you're not, uh, you know, working on that T-shirt design <laughs> for your own starship, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at, at Twitter uh, under Flintastic. So that's F-L-Y-N-T-T-A-S-T-I-C. And shoot me a tweet. Let's talk about stuff. And of course, you can also hear Tyler from time to time on the Ready Room with me as well when we talk about Enterprise and and some other series along the way. And you'll never find me anywhere near Section 31 that I can speak of. Not that you can speak of, mm-hmm. yes. Mom's the word. Well, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, you can find me, as I just mentioned, on the Ready Room. We talk about Star Trek news and all five live action Star Trek series on that show. And we actually did a special show this week where we had some of the cast and crew of Star Trek Continues on to talk about that series, which is is really beautifully done and really feels like TOS. And in fact, the the ship work that's done on that show is done by Doug Drexler, who, of course, designed the NX-01. So go over and check that out if you're interested. You'll also find me on Literary Treks with Matthew Rushing, where we talk about Star Trek books and comics and interview authors. Matthew and I also do The Orb together, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. And then you'll find me on my interview show, Matter Stream. Before we let you go, we'd also like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, and that is Audible.com. Audible helps us bring Warp 5 to you every week. They have over 150,000 audiobooks for you to choose from on the site. They add hundreds of books every week. They have new releases, bestsellers, lots of classics, lots of Star Trek books as well. You know, if if you're listening to podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks if you're not already listening to them. And as a Trek FM listener, you can try Audible and get a free audiobook. If you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up for the trial, you can choose any audiobook you want. And then if after the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, you get to keep that audiobook. So there's nothing to lose. And by supporting Audible, you're supporting the network. So we really thank you for doing that. And we thank Audible for their support. And again, that's at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we'd also like to invite you to check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. That's the jazz cover you hear of Where My Heart Will Take Me uh, during the show. So um, it's, it's a really great album. If you like that song, you're going to find a lot of other stuff to like there. Most definitely. And he, there are nine other songs on there, including a jazz version of the theme from Insurrection. Oh, yeah. Which, I forgot about that one. So, yeah, go, go check it out on iTunes or Amazon and uh, support Andrew. And, it, you know, he's really doing some great stuff. Yeah, really, really good stuff there. And one more thing you can do to help us keep Warp 5 coming to you every week is to make a donation to the network. If you go over to trek.fm slash donate, you'll find different contribution levels to choose from, as well as eight different aliens that are original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And your donations help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring the show to you every week. It really adds up because we do have quite a large audience. And so we appreciate any support that you can provide in helping us keep the network going. Again, that's at trek.film slash donate. And we really thank you for your help. Well, Tyler, great show today. Really enjoyed the discussion talking about prequel design. And for everyone else, I hope you'll join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5. Have we been in the Decon Chamber this whole time? Is that why you're rubbing lotion on me? 
What's going That's on right. here? <laughs> Thanks, you everybody. You not supposed to tell anybody about that. <laughs> Have a great week. <laughs>